Welcome to this week's episode of Nearly Numinous. Today we're taking advantage of Thanksgiving approaching and diving into discussions on communal meals. Often in contemporary settings, we gather for holidays such as Thanksgiving with family or friends where the entire gathering is centered around this meal. But this theme can be found across cultures, religious traditions, and throughout centuries, albeit with varying themes. However, many of the gatherings take on ritual experience for those participating, whether it's for a religious holiday or not. Today, we have the pleasure of having Dr. Richard Askoff, a professor in the School of Religion at Queen's University. He has published work on communal dining rituals in the ancient Roman world, many of which held both religious and social significance. Dr. Askoff, you can give us a bit of background as to who you are and what do you study and kind of what brought you into the discussion today? Sure. Well, I'm, of course, a professor and, and technically I think my title is professor of New Testament. Certainly that's what I was hired to, to teach uh, at Queen's, but uh, that's been broadened out. So I, I teach things like religion and film and religion and business ethics um, Greco-Roman religions more broadly, as well as a, a course on the New Testament. And my training is in early Christianity, development of early Christianity, and a lot of my research has been on the relationship, or at least trying to understand early Christ groups in its sociocultural context compared to other kinds of group formations, what we call Greco-Roman associations, but kind of the campus clubs or the rotary clubs of antiquity. So I'd spent quite a bit of time, did my dissertation on that, and um, I don't remember exactly, I've lose, lose sight of the dates, but sometime in the, the mid-early 2000s, uh, in the aughts, um, I was asked to give a paper on association meals in antiquity, uh, and so I was gonna, going to give this at a conference, I thought, Ah, okay, I guess. Like, I know a lot about associations, but really how much is there to say about meals? And as I started writing that paper, I realized just how much there was on meals in in the data we have, which is all inscriptions and papyri documents. And I started to mine it more and more. And um, I gave this paper at this... Um, it was an early manifestation of a research group on meals in early Christianity. And I think we all realized um, that we had underestimated just how much there was there to explore both in terms of the data and then theoretically once we brought the, the theory uh, theorists into conversation. And so what I thought was kind of a one-off paper that I might struggle to write turned into about a 10-year um, project of, of me looking at meals and associations in early Christianity in various ways and, and publishing um, a number of, of articles on, on meals, particularly um, an earlier interest on burials, so burial practices in these groups. So meals and memorials basically became the focus for about a decade uh, and still pops up. I still get at to write, write on meals in, in early Christianity. And I continue to work on rituals and uh, uh, just starting uh, work on editing a collection uh, of essays on, on rituals. And of course, meals factor into that as well, but also other kinds of rituals, water rituals, burial rituals and things. 
Super interesting. Uh, thank you so much for coming and being on our podcast oh, and sharing this knowledge with us. Most of what we are hoping to do on our the Nearly Numinous podcast is kind of bring into discussion these kind of histories and theories and the things we talk about in an academic setting, but also make them really accessible to just any person. You know, I want my grandparents to be able to tune into this and find a glimmer of knowledge and uh, excitement and talking about maybe things that they can connect with. So potentially maybe a broad question, but do you kind of see a lot of the rituals that you've studied surrounding communal meals mirrored in what we do in today's setting um and even i again i understand that's a very broad question but maybe just an example or two if you've got one sure no it's a great question um insofar as meals are highly ritualized no matter where they're taking place um i I mean this debate about at what point you know a habit is a ritual or ritual is a habit but um certainly we we ritualize a lot of the meals and um both in antiquity uh we talk about the rituals there but also in the current context so we you know we started by talking about thanksgiving and and just how uh, when you think about um sort of so-called typical thanksgiving meals in north america um how ritualized they are i mean they happen on a certain date every year and and certain expectations are there and I think probably more so in the United States at their Thanksgiving, where it's it's more important as a family event than, say, Christmas for most people. This is that's your maximal effort to get home to see your family will be Thanksgiving, um, you know, even if you can't make it home a month later for Christmas. So, uh, and that has it, it's, its own history, which is, is also linked to various kind of uh, movements, but also um, rituals. And then the things that that rituals do then. So for, for example, um, one thing that rituals do is, is um, bind a community very close together, be that a family or um, a, a, a group of uh, unrelated people. And I think, you know, I certainly can point to lots of examples from antiquity where that's happening. And, and certainly in early Christianity, meals uh, are central to that, to, to binding the people, the, the, the adherents to Christ. Actually, adhering them to one another. But I think also um, uh, here as well, when, when we look at, um, uh, here today in the contemporary world, when we look at the way meals function socially for a group, it brings together, say, uh, acquaintances or, or even friends. But over that meal, there's a certain kind of intimacy that takes place that um, over time can strengthen those bonds to one another. And as fractious as, as some th- holidays can be for families like Thanksgiving uh, or, or other kinds of, of holidays or religious or otherwise, um, there's sort of family bonding that takes place there, even with the tropes of, of families falling out and you know, Crazy Uncle Ernie or something <laughs> happening. Um, that part, in, in some ways, of Crazy Uncle Ernie doesn't act out. We feel like we've been ripped off that mm. year because that's part of the ritual <laughs> that, that, that these sorts of things uh, take place. So when we look at meals, we realize right from, you know, where the fork and knife are set, you know, that that becomes part of the ritual, all the way through to, you know, um, whether the the broccoli casserole is made or missing, uh, to the other things that go on. Uh, We can talk about how these are both everyday occurrences or, you know, Claude Gagnon talks about, you know, the, the, the binaries of, you know, for example, everyday meals versus exceptional meals, you know, transgressive meals versus meals that bring people together. Um, so that, that's happening throughout history. So something you were just talking about, and also uh, I came across this in your paper, I believe it was in the 
Oxford Handbook of Rituals, mm-hmm. Early Christian Rituals. Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I came across that paper and what you were just talking about as well as what you mentioned a lot in that paper was uh, about who is at the meal and who's not at the meal. Uh, and I'd be really interested in hearing how the important that takes apart, because I think that even in our current environment, there's, you know, there's definitely a, a difference in who's included and who's excluded. And oftentimes it's very purposeful. Right. Yeah. So let me start with antiquity because I, that's, I'm, I'm more familiar with that. But certainly um, banquets, for example, in the Roman world were, were semi-public kinds of events where um, uh, you would receive an invitation to go to the banquet early on, and then um, a slave might be dispatched to remind you and actually even bring you uh, to to the um, domestic space, the, the house where this banquet was going to take place. And of course, um, life was lived out in the public more so then than now. And uh, everyone would see that you were going. And so they would know that they weren't invited and that you were. And the way a lot of uh, Roman houses, particularly the more wealthy houses, are constructed, um, once the main doors open and were left open for the day, you could you could see through the vestibule, uh, through maybe the, the opening gathering area, uh, right through into the open dining area. And so often you could see who was invited and uh, more importantly, where they were seated. So even in once you were in the dining area, um, they the, the could accommodate usually nine, nine to 15 people uh, who reclined. They didn't actually sit, but reclined. And even where you were placed reclining, which of the three benches you were reclining on and your position on that bench was hier- hierarchically stratified. So, you know, the closer you were to, to the host, the more important you were. There was this, the place of honor, uh, all the way down to sort of being number nine, which, of course, you didn't want to be, but it's better to be number nine than to be one of the people at the doorway looking in. <laughs> so it was very much uh, uh, reminding everyone, both those involved in the meal, but also those outside, just where you fit in relation to, for example, a rich patron. And so today you think about, um, say, a child's birthday party, which kind of, again, has its own ritual, has a little meal there, and how upset a child will be, you know, if all their friends get invited to somebody's birthday party and they don't, right? There's this sort of inclusion-exclusion. So on the one hand, the child's very excited to get to go. On the other hand, upset they get to go. Or if all if all of our friends decide to go out and... Um, we don't get included in the invitation. So, so those kinds of uh, affective emotional responses are part of, of feeling left out of, of these meals as well. Um, my running club is struggling with this now because, of course, under COVID, um, we're restricted uh, as, as a group of sometimes up to 20, 20 runners that run. Reg- we run regularly on Monday, and then we, we, we meet afterwards at a pub for a drink and some food. But now we have to sit in groups of, of six, uh, certainly no more than 10. And so who sits with who, you know, and, um, you know, what if you book 10 seats, but, you know, there's 12 people that want to go there. So, again, Social dynamics are going on around the, these meals, and the meals themselves sort of reinforce that by saying, oh, you're included or or you're excluded. I'm also wondering, we were just talking about um, being vegetarian and how sometimes we can go to a meal and we can't eat everything mm-hmm. um, that's there. And I was wondering, are there any parallels that would have happened in, in these early rituals? Um, 
and the sorts of divisions that that might have created in the actual dining space. Yeah, oh, absolutely, yeah. So in the, in the Roman world, of course, where you're seated at the triclinium, Greek, Greek and Roman world, where you're seated also demarcates um, how much food you get. Your portion will be bigger the more important you are, and the quality of that food. So at a larger gathering, uh, even at one of these association gatherings that we look at, where they might have multiple triclinia set up in a large room, both which of those tables you sit at would makes a difference, but also how you can see how much food and the quality of food somebody else is getting compared to what you're getting. Um, so it would be imagine going to a wedding now and you think oh you know i'm a really good friend of the bride and then you realize but you're sitting at the table that's farthest away from the front so how good a friend are you compared to the person that's sitting you know up with the bride's parents for example uh so so amplify in the roman world that's amplified because then you know uh that table with the parents are getting like the the choice cuts of tofu or meat or whatever, <laughs> whereas the other table is is getting just you know a basket of of, of um, French fries, That's something like that. dry bread, dry or bread something. or something. <laughs> yeah, um, so the you know you're still getting fed, but the the quality is meant then to reinforce this those social divisions. Um, we we are less intentional about it, even though it happens today. In, in the Roman world, they are very intentional about it, and everyone knew they were intentional about it. I mean, they knew this was the game that's going on, and you wanted to be able to move your way up the social hierarchy. Um, so, yeah, then what to do about vegetarians? I mean, especially if it's a choice, or in the case of, say, um, what do I do if I invite, invite uh, you know, this acquaintance they just made, but he's, he, he belonged to this, you know, odd religion that I don't know much about. Uh, they worship this singular god, and they're all from Judea, and he tells me he doesn't eat pork. I mean, what am I going to do with that? Right, so so this created a problem, a social world as as Judeans, um, you know, they're they're working outside of Judea, they're all over the Circum Mediterranean, and um, you know, for them, who do they eat with or not eat with? What do they eat, not eat? You know, given the the, the restrictions of Torah, uh, and then for Romans who say, oh, you know, nice person, I want to do business with them, but business is best done over a meal. But now, you know, he tells me he won't eat this or that. That's kind of weird. Uh, so how am I going to do that? And and you know, it'll single that person out. And so we see that even reflected in a lot of, um, you know, particularly Paul's letters in the book of Acts, uh, as early early Christ followers are wrestling with. A lot of it is actually around um, how you eat together. I was wondering if there were any political or social consequences to not being invited to the table or uh, being placed in a lesser position, being like number nine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, social and political, both, right? So whether whether you're not invited, of course, that's a clear signal that mm -hmm. you're kind of out of favor. But even to be invited and placed in a lower position is a reminder to you just where you fit. And in the Roman world, then, you would have, you know, if, if I were in position number nine, the whole meal, I would think, how am I going to ingratiate myself to the host? To, to um, Particularly if, say, he was my patron and, and I, you know, I want to sort of have him look after me more, which was, was a frequent dynamic, then the meal setting becomes that place. Um, and so um, as in all of, of life uh, in, in Roman antiquity, a lot of it was, was based on the honor, what I call the honor-shame game, where um, there's a certain amount of honor that goes around, but it's a limited amount. So um, the more I have, then the more likely I am to move up the hierarchy. 
but I can only gain more honor by taking it away from someone else. So in the meal setting then, um, you know, we have our meal, it's very nice, but then afterwards is a philosophical discussion, you know, that takes place. And, you know, often, you know, the wine flows and you need to be witty, you need to be wise. And that's a place where if I can make myself shine a little bit better than you two, then maybe at the next meal, uh, you know, you'll be eight and nine and I'll have at least moved to seven, <laughs> right? But if I say something and you make me look stupid, then I may not even get invited next time. So this, this, this dynamic is always present, and any of these meals as well as, as people are jockeying for those kinds of positions. And so you're always constantly aware of that. Um, of course, you know, it's both, it would be both a great honor and a great fear if you were to be invited to a banquet at the, um, in, in the domicile of the emperor. Because there you might think, wow, I'm so important. The emperor wants me there. Of course, the, this was also the place where the emperor, some emperors, people like uh, Caligula, for example, some of the worst emperors, Caligula, Nero, used those meal settings to humiliate important senators. I mean, they were del- and, and actually, you know, cause them to go and commit suicide. Not because they're embarrassed, but that was just like the command, you will go uh, sort of thing. This is, this is your, your death sentence. So, you know, on the one hand, it's a great honor. On the other hand, it's, it's blood sport. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and so uh, meals become the setting for some of them. I can't help but think uh, just more anecdotally about the fact that uh, my, my dad has done a lot of travel and international business. And the idea of sharing a meal has been kind of at the center of a lot of his business transactions. And he's told stories about, you know, being in China and uh, it's where he was was very it was a it was a very big insult to not accept the food that was given to you and so he would be put in these sticky situations where he would have to eat food that he would not normally eat uh, especially when it comes to different types of animals mm-hmm. uh, just out of respect um, but the thing was is in order to kind of get the client and you know have a successful business t- transaction you would have to do this um, and so I find it really interesting that we we definitely still see these kind of themes throughout the world today, but even more so in, you know, a lot of these cultures that there's there's a lot of honor and respect still at the center of food and meals and how we share in those meals together. Yeah, so, I mean, that's a great example of, of, of one of the, the ways um, that, that, the, the cultural differences in how we ritualize the meals and, and how what we think is normative is really culturally based. And so when you go elsewhere and realize, oh, um, they're doing it differently, uh, not necessarily better or worse, but differently. And in order to broker those social relationships, I have to uh, maybe put aside some of my concerns and, um, and, and participate in the way that they do the meals. But it feels very strange, very foreign to us. Like that's not Somehow that's not right, but that's, I mean, it's not a moral judgment. Of course, it's, it's just culturally different, but, but it, it really throws us off, and that shows just how ingrained our own notions of what a meal does or doesn't look like or what is appropriate to eat or not eat or, or even who is appropriate to eat or not eat with. And so um, I mentioned Gagnon earlier, and he talks about transgressive meals, and that um, can be both in how they're conducted or who is invited. And so, um, uh, again, going back to, to my field, uh, some of the stories in the Gospels talk about um, uh, Jesus. Um, he, apparently he ate and drank a lot, so much so that, that, that one of the accusations they could level against him is that he's a glutton and a drunkard. <laughs> so clearly he ate more, uh, enough that people thought, that 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 uh, and, and that thought that he was uh, doing so to excess, and interestingly, um, 
meal settings are the most common setting for for stories uh, in especially in well in all the gospels in fact you know uh, almost a good third of John from from chapter 13 through 17 is all just one meal setting where Jesus does a discourse um, and so uh, and yet so meals are where this takes place and yet Jesus is also presented as transgressing the meal boundaries so when he eats with with other uh, Judeans of the time particularly the Pharisees and or the Sadducees they'll say to him things like well you know your disciples didn't wash their hands properly or worse um, Jesus allows other people to come in um, uh, somebody who's considered unclean so so somebody that has an illness or is considered to be demon possessed or you know worse in that culture a woman comes in and and in Luke tells the story of a woman who comes in and doesn't name her but says um, a woman um, from the city which is a euphemism for prostitute comes in and starts um, wiping Jesus feet clean with and using her hair to clean his uh, well, this is completely transgressive and yet you know Jesus flips it on his host and says you know you don't like it but you know you didn't bother cleaning my feet so at least she's doing something you should have done. That is, it's actually normalizing uh, something that you transgress by breaking the normal ritual of, of having your slave or, uh, wash my feet when I came in. Mm. So these kinds of stories going all the time where it's both you have to understand the cultural codes, what would be expected, and then the stories, they don't tell us what would be expected because their readers would have known. But what we can see once you know that is just where they're being transgressed and, and both in, in what is eaten, how it's eaten, and who it's who, who they're eating with. Right, and that's the whole, um, well, Jesus at one point washes all of his disciples' feet too, and that was quite right. radical, I remember. Yeah, 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 so in Gospel of John, Jesus sort of bends down when they're coming in and washes their feet, and then, you know, Peter says, you're too important to, to do this to me, and, and, you know, Jesus said, no, no, this must be done for the kingdom of God, and then Peter you know, throws the whole, all goes all in, says, wash my whole body. Jesus like, <laughs> dude, you're just not getting it. <laughs> this Classic, is it. And, yeah. and, and, and it's, a, it's a symbolic action. It's the, both your feet are dirty. I mean, they wore sandals in a very dusty, dry environment, so you needed your feet to be washed. But um, it, it's that uh, Jesus here takes on the role of a slave. So there again, it's, it's transgressive. Um, and yet at the same time, even in being transgressive, it's forging the bonds of community. It, it's saying, you know, like we're all of you are having your feet washed by Jesus. Therefore, you're, you know, no one's better or worse. No one's singled out. You're all in this uh, together. And so you have this this dual function in in meals like that, where it both it challenges the boundaries while also still reinforcing some social boundaries. In this case, you know, bonding people. And I believe there's also a story um, that Jesus tells about, um, like this rich. Uh, landowner who invited a whole bunch of people to a banquet and they all said no no we can't come and so he invites um, all these other people that normally wouldn't be invited so I'm just thinking about yeah like there's lots in there that that was quite radical yeah yeah and again very transgressive and sort of a it's an interesting story because on the one hand you know the the rich the landowner has this a great banquet and it's a deliberate snub against him so in the honor shame game he's being dishonored by them saying, you're not worth my time, I'm not going to come. Uh, and, and yet in the story then it flips because he says, well, screw you, <laughs> I'll invite other people. And, and sort of says, you know, y- y- these, these people, these beggars from the street are more important than you that tried to snub me. So it kind of flips it on its, its head again. 
but again, through the lens of the honor shame, you can see that the play back and forth is, is, is as you try to like um, both gain honor by um, shaming the other person. Was it reasonably common that people would refuse to come to a banquet? No, I think that's part of that whole story. Okay. Is, is <laughs> that that's, it's, that it's a fictional story, right? <laughs> free food, but but also, yeah, if he's, a, if, he's, if he's as wealthy as important as the story sort of leads with, <laughs> then, um, uh, then, then, yeah, they wouldn't. And I think that's part of the shock value of the parable. So that's a parable. And that's just simply the way parables, um, I shouldn't say simply, I mean, it's a complex literary form, but that's how parables work is they, they, f they, they start out, and, and, that, and that one I think it says, a certain rich man held a banquet. And, and that's that little phrase, a certain man, is an invitation for the, the listener, because it would have been heard orally, um, to identify with that character. So it's like, oh, that's me. Hey, yeah, the banquet, that's cool. I'm having a banquet, all these important people. And then no one comes and like, oh, I don't want to be that guy. <laughs> so it, it's, 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 it creates this cognitive dissonance for the listener. Um, so something like the parable of the Good Samaritan, which, which everyone, I mean, even that title, which doesn't occur in the Bible, um, people say, oh, I should be like the Good Samaritan. But the story is a certain man walked from Jerusalem to Jericho. And I mean, the guy's a moron. That's a very dangerous road. You don't walk it by yourself ever. And yet the story is constructed at the literary level to say, you are, you, the listener, are that person. You're the moron that gets beaten up, <laughs> right? And so it's not about being a good Samaritan to someone else. It's allowed, allowing yourself in that context to be touched by someone that you would consider unclean. So for the Judean to, to actually, you know, would rather die than be touched by a in their mind, a dirty Samaritan has no choice because they're, they're so broken. Uh, and so it's putting yourself in a position of vulnerability. And so with the banquet one too, it's saying you have no control over what these people have done. <laughs> and, and it's this shaming, dishonoring kinds of actions that, that, that says, how will you respond? And in that particular story, it's like, then you open yourself up to the other undesirable people. That's where your community is born. So, I mean, I can uh, you know, make another example just about how, uh, more contemporary example, um, Steph, you asked about, you know, how we make these connections. So if you're familiar with Harry Potter, I, I think, of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> uh, and, um, and you think about the, you know, Harry Potter, so I'm thinking of the movie here, but it's in the book as well, but Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, and when they first get to the school, I mean, what's the orienting event for them is, of course, a meal, right? And a very highly ritualized meal, a ritual within ritual. So at that very first meal, they have the sorting hat. And in that context, the sorting hat is going to tell you who your community is going to be for your time at Hogwarts. And so it'll, it'll fit you in. And once, once these newcomers are told which, which house they're going to be in, they have to go over to that table. That's who they're going to eat with. Um, and yet there's a separation, you know, even between the tables. And then there's a table where the students are versus the head table. Center of the head table is the headmaster, right? And then in decreasing order report, I mean, name the people at the end. So, you know, who are they if we know them? I mean, Hagrid, maybe. I, I was going to say, the one that we know is at the end is Hagrid, Trelawney. of course, who's the groundskeeper. But then where's the janitor? Oh, yeah, that's he's right. He's not what even he at say? the table. Oh. He's standing off to the side, right? Because he never gets to eat. That I sucks. Get, right? He has to eat by himself. No so, wonder he's so angry. <laughs> <laughs> that's that look on his face, oh. right? Um, and so it's, it's a nice little illustration. I think J.K. Rowling has either by design or by luck kind of seen the, how important ritual is within meal 
but it's not about the food. It's about um, about how that meal setting um, uh, constructs social hierarchies. And of course, we find out later on, in fact, that the food doesn't just appear. There's a whole layer underneath of sort of lower class citizens, right? That the house elves that are, are involved, I believe, unless I'm, but I think so, yeah, um, right. who, are, who are making all that, that the Hermione later on will sort of, sort, of, sort of take some social action to sort of get some rights for, 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 for this guy. But at first you say, oh, this food, isn't just it wonderful? Appears, it just yeah. appears. But then you realize there's another hierarchy too. And so, you know, these are the slaves who are ubiquitous at meals in antiquity but are not paid attention to. They're, they're just kind of there as instruments to bring the food to the important people, at least important in their own minds. Um, so these are all, it's, it's this hierarchical structuring which is reinforce, reinforcing the status quo, right? It's saying teachers are more important than students and, you know, these class divisions even among the houses by, you know, different things. And then janitor, yeah, off to the side. And so it, it actually reinforces the social hierarchy right there at a meal. But um, I've been listening to a podcast called Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Have you heard no, of that? No, I've heard of it. I haven't actually it's listened to it. Good. I hear it's very good. They talk about meals a little bit too. And one of the points that they had was um, like we don't know a whole bunch about the backgrounds of these students. Like um, like, like if they're rich, poor, but all, like all at the same meal, they're eating the same food. Mm. Um, and so they're all kind of like brought together in this. And it's also like the I think the only time really that everybody at Hogwarts is together um so just like kind of though there are these divisions within the different tables and the different house tables they're also all together and they're all eating the same food which is yeah yeah and and in that context in that particular context you see they're all dressed in their black gown Mm, which which is a levels the playing field so you can't have ostentatious clothing you can't have your very rich clothing while your 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 less wealthy friend has their poor stuff um so that's one one way of you can regularize that sort of um the hierarchical divisions at a meal and say for this meal we are all equal now of course when the meal's over and and this is one of the points i make in the article that that steph referenced earlier um it's transgressive insofar as social divisions no longer matter look we're all just the same and we have examples of um inscriptions that say that uh, a slave and a master belong to the same association get the same food like it's very very important that 60 people in this group no more no less is always 60, uh, and um, they all eat the same. And in theory, it says anyone could become president. And we know from the names, some, some of the members are slaves. So in theory, a slave could become president. I actually doubt that ever happened. But everybody gets the same portion. You think, wow, what a great group. Everyone's equal. But you know, as soon as they step outside of that meal, the slave is not equal to the master or any other master. The slave is still legally a slave and therefore property, not even under the eyes of the law in, Rome, in the Roman world, not even human. So, so the meal provides a temporary su- suspension of some of those ho- social divisions, um, which which then fall back. And and so yeah, in Harry Potter you see that that yeah, there's that suspension there. But then, you know, outside of that meal setting, there might be the jockeying for for the social hierarchy again. Between Draco and Harry. That's the Draco and Harry being the extreme examples of that. Yeah. So I know we've been talking a little bit about uh, banquets specifically and kind of those very formal meals, but I know, Jacqueline, you had maybe a little bit to say about the kind of difference between the everydayness of us sitting down and having dinner versus 
the more celebratory meals itself. Maybe you can kind of chat a bit about that. Yeah, so um, back in my undergrad, a couple years in, I was staying at this, um, it's kind of hard to describe, uh, like a, it was sort of a cross between like a residence and a, like a community living situation. So there was a couple that um, owned the house, but then um, the rest were all university students. There was about 10 of us, I believe. And so, um, yeah, and so it, it was um, it was an Anabaptist-based community home. So um, it was it was Christian, but you didn't have to be Christian to live there. It was just kind of expected that you like you would respect um, the beliefs of others, that sort of thing. And so a very important part of living together in community was specifically supper. So um, the rest of the meals, like we we shared food and everything throughout the day, but supper, um, it was kind of expected that we would make an effort to come and eat together. And part of that was just like logistical, but it was also just because that was like the main um, the main time when we would all come together and like chat. A lot of us went to different institutions, so we would uh, meet together over over the meal, talk about our days. We would invite guests over. The house was called the Emmaus House, and so it was based on this story about just after uh, Jesus had died, the disciples were walking to uh, this place called Emmaus, and they were walking and like quite sad because their friend had just died. And all of a sudden, this man's on the side of the road with them and starts walking with them and talking. And it's Jesus, but they don't realize it until I believe it's like they get in and start eating together. Yeah, they just all of a sudden realize it's Jesus. And so the idea of um, how the divine can be with us without realizing it or just um, just finding um, finding god in the everyday that sort of thing i was just thinking about that and how like how that connected with how we did meals every day it was it was it was kind of like an everyday like it, it was every day so it was normal but it was also special right and so i'm just kind of curious about the the distinction between like um the banquet meals and um yeah just communal meals and like uh the being set apart from other meals, but also the everydayness of the ritual. I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on that. No, that that's a that's a lovely example of of how things can be both exceptional and and sort of regular at the same time, um, because there is an exceptionality in our culture to saying you will have this meal, you know, as much as you are able to be at this meal every single day. You know, that actually runs against the grain of I'm just going to grab something quick uh, on, on, on the way out the door or, you know, at, at, a, at a, you know, a Tim Hortons or something on my way to class. So, so it, it's saying let's slow down and, and make this special, but it's also a regularly occurring thing that you actually are expected to be there. And then I like that you erase your, yourself <laughs> rather than you, you write your name in. It's just you're going to be there unless you tell us otherwise. Yeah. That's another really good example, I think, in that case of, you know, with people living together, it's a way of saying, that, that we are more than just the sum of our parts. We are a community. And so that, you know, once a day we make the effort to uh, connect as community and we do so over a meal. Um, and I think it, it fits with a tradition, uh, both inside and outside Christianity. I think it's, it's pretty ubiquitous across cultures where food is that point, um, where, where it's, it's a sharing and, and choosing to eat together says something about who you want to be with. So, um, None of us can go without food. We all have to eat, but we don't have to eat with each other, right? That's where we have a choice, right? We have no choice about eating. And so that we choose to eat with, in, in the case of a mass house, the same people 
every day and you know, open to inviting other people, says, I am choosing, deliberately choosing this community and, and looking to build community there. And, and I think, you know, in the, certainly in the Anabaptist tradition, food is very, very important yes. for that. So that's, a, you know, that's an example of how it carries on in that. And interestingly, the, the, the name is interesting to me, of course, you know, as a biblical scholar, because uh, I had not really thought about it much until I was invited into this, this work on meals that you know, I, I said it, you know, grabbed me for 10 years. And, and so that's one of the passages to look at and, and realize, you know, in the Gospel of Luke, uh, which is where that, that text occurs, um, it's, it's a turning point in the story, um, the realization that, that um, not just the tomb is empty, but in fact, um, uh, Jesus has this presence, this risen presence that they recognize. It's precisely at the meal that that gets recognized. And that was one of the things that you realize, well, what, what's going on with meals is worth, so one of the questions I asked myself, what's going on at, with meals at the literary level? So you go back to the Gospel of Luke, and particularly in my case, read forward through the Gospel, or through the Book of Acts, and realize how central meals are at key points throughout the whole way that Luke narrates early Christianity. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, you know, this, in, in your case, um, that's, that's, that's a, um, carried on in saying for for Christians to gather or as you say at least to gather ostensibly as a Christian community whether or not you're Christian um, meals have to be a central for that and and as they carried on nicely what I find really interesting is we've been talking a lot about how central food and meals are to a lot of the stories throughout the Bible but I can't help but think about all the times that abstaining from food was also a very central part. And we hear this across religious traditions, that fasting is a pretty central part to most kind of spiritual experiences. And uh, I'm wondering if you have anything to add on that. Well, I I think it's interesting because fasting is just another ritualized way of eating, but in this case, not eating. So it's, again, choosing. Uh, it has a limited span, right? You can't, you fast too long, you die. Um, so so it's, it's for a certain period of time that you choose to separate yourself for, you know, for a specific purpose. Um, and it might be, you know, a spiritual commitment, it might be fulfilling a vow. Um, and yet there's always the breaking of the fast is usually highly ritualized, where it too, even if it's just you know, simple bread and water, or is an elaborate kind of group thing where individuals have separated to fast and then come back together uh, to break that fast. Um, and, and so both the fasting itself, but also the coming back together, are these highly ritualized moments that, that bond the community of those who have fasted, even when the fasting itself is ritualized, it might have prayer or meditation or something else going on during it, where the individual can connect to to the divine. So in the Christian tradition, sort of meditation on God, but certainly not. I mean, it's, it's across different traditions as well, where fasting is important. But like I say, it's a very limited, a very limited time span. The majority of what I know on the subject between, uh, on the intersection between food and religion has to do with um, like fasting, disordered eating, um, uh, which foods in the diet industry are considered like sinful versus what will, you know, purify, detoxify you, all that. So I was just, we've talked a lot about the meals themselves being important, but I was wondering if you had any thoughts on 
the specific foods that are part of these rituals that might be religiously or ritualistically significant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, a couple of things to pick up on there. So, so uh, very important things to pick up on, on there is a lot of it. So when you talk about um, sort of diets, whether they're fad diets or so ongoing kinds of diets or um, disordered eating practices, which themselves can become highly ritualized, right, in their behavior, or habituated, if not ritualized, but they often get certain rituals in order to prevent myself from eating or overeating or eating too much or eating enough. Um, and a lot of it comes down to control. Right, so control of the body, control of emotions through through eating, um, and in in some ways, this is what um, the restrictions around food or or, or drink, even in um, uh, in different religious traditions, are often about control and commitment, either individual control or, or communal control. It, it's interesting um, if you ask uh, a Mormon at least in my experience, um, if you ask a Mormon why they won't have caffeine or why they won't um, eat chocolate or drink coffee or Coca-Cola, they'll say, well, because it has caffeine. And, and that's actually not why they're restricted. They're restricted from those things just because, right? So there's, it's not that there's something in there. It's just that this is a test of your commitment to God. Will you abstain from these rather attractive things? And, and so that's a form both of showing your self-control, but it's also a form of, of a hierarchy to show, to have communal control. We know who's in or out of the community by what they will or won't eat. And, and so um, with uh, disordered eating practices, for example, that's a form of saying self, showing self-control, like I can control my body, what goes in and out of my body, and, and, and control my weight that way. But then, um, and I don't know a lot about this, but it, it's sort of interesting that there are um, web groups, in fact, support groups for people with bulimia, but, but not to help them get through it, but in fact to encourage the practice. They have their own websites. They have Twitter accounts, Tumblr accounts. Um, they're, it's very interesting. They have, like, commandments sometimes. Mm-hmm with very religious or spiritual language they often use to uh, encourage you to adhere to those rules and discourage you from eating. Um, It's sort of also often, it often elevates eating disorders to like a sort of godlike or spiritual presence or power in your life that you need to obey at all times. To me, it's really curious. I mean, I think it's an area I haven't looked at a lot, but just whereas on the one hand, we might react and say, oh, that's disordered eating. But then we might look at, you know, one of the the saints in the Christian tradition, for example, that might only eat berries for four years. Say, oh, you know, what a beautiful commitment to God. He's like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> they're locusts. Uh, yeah, or locusts. Right? John, the, John the Baptist had Why? a pretty messed up diet, right? Uh, and yet he's, you know, St. John the Baptist. And, and so, you know, Again, it's a, it's it's a. If you pull back, it's sort of a, a social control thing of who gets to label those, and I can take this person from history and say, what a great saint, and and yet look today and say, oh, you know, what an abhorrent practice that should be stopped, and and yet 
on the surface, they seem to be doing similar things, demonstrating control of one's self, one's appetites. Uh, and then in, in the case that you're pointing to, Rachel, then it, for a larger purpose, for a larger cause. Mm-hmm. Well, at that level, they seem to be very similar, yet one is vilified, the other is, is, is highly praised. Um, so I think, yeah, so, and maybe the work is going on there. It's a little bit out of my field, but um, seems to be a lot of work could be done on that in terms of ritual, commit, ritual and religious practices and commitments. I did some research in my undergrad about uh, medieval Christian women who so have sort of been retroactively diagnosed with anorexia mirabilis, mm-hmm. holy anorexia. And I, I always found that really, really interesting. Um, about the motivations for their restrictions and fasting, um, the sort of punishment they brought unto themselves, uh, and how that is incredibly similar to a lot of the trends we see in the diet industry today and a lot of these pro-Anna and Mia sites. Yeah, it seems, uh, I, I, again, as sort of in the post-enlightenment development of science, and then we sort of retroactively go back and start reading these um, sort of ancient texts, ancient practices, and realize just what more is going on than the way the stories are narrated at that time, um, which is where I think then, as it started out with, is sort of one thing just to observe sort of patterns around meals in my case. But when you start bringing the modern theories in, so people that study meals today and say, okay, so that sociology, that psychology, that, that anthropology, that can now be applied to the ancient text as much as possible. I mean, there's always limitations around it. And we realize so much more of what's going on. Um, you know, and even, even on the opposite side, retroactive attempts to explain things. Well, the reason, you know, Jews don't eat pork is because they realize there's a bacterium in it. But no, they, of course they didn't realize that back then. Uh, again, I think it's one of those, those things where somebody decided we're going to eat that. We're not going to eat that. <laughs> right. And it's got, you know, and then you put the overlay of God's command on it and, 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 and you've got a, got a rule to follow, but it's, it's, yeah. it's about control. One thing that I'm really interested in surrounding meals is kind of, um, one of the rituals that I think we see today in various forms is this idea of being thankful for your meal before you start eating. And we see that within the Christian community um, about praying. And I I think at least when I was growing up, that was very common in my household where we pray before our meal and say thanks to God and thank God for the day, etc. But you even see that today in, you know, the kind of spirituality community where You've got people standing in circles holding hands and thanking the earth for giving its abundance and bounty for your meal. Uh, And I'm very curious about, you know, if anybody has any anecdotes or insights into this idea of being thankful for your meal. Something that I've noticed, especially with a lot of people that I don't know a better term to put it other than white girls super into yoga. Uh, they really have this practice now where it's like prayer. Uh, it's like the things that you often see within a Christian community, but it's removed from that. And instead, it's looking to fully honoring your meal and where it came from. And I think that that kind of theme is very similar. You just kind of take the higher power out of it. And I'm very fascinated by that. Um, and I, I don't know as well if this has been if this has kind of been the perspective throughout time or if this is something we've really changed in the contemporary age, especially because I think there's such a disconnect between where we get our food from and where we sit to eat it. 
That reminds me of, um, we were recently talking about Zac Efron's show, Down to Earth, and he has a quote here. Um, when they go to the eco-village and they're, um, the community is all standing together holding hands, Zach does a voiceover. He says, being grateful for the meal, which you're about to have, is not necessarily a religious thing. It's just a solid approach to life. Taking a little time to give thanks throughout the day is something we could all do a, a little more often. So that really relates to what you were just saying, Stephanie. Um, so it's a curious thing that, that we maintain that sort of ritual of giving thanks, but, but are a bit vague on, on just what's behind there. Uh, and I'm not arguing that it should be something behind there, but, but it's, it's, for me, it's, it's, you know, in looking at ritual, it just speaks to just how important the ritual is that we would want to keep it even without having to worry about whether there's something bigger behind it to receive my thanks when I do that. And, and then I think it shows in the, in the case of that, this Zac Efron uh, example that you gave, then what that does for that community is bind them. Right, so we go back to that idea that, in fact, in that meal, by ritualizing, by adding a little prayer or whatever it is, a little saying of Thanksgiving ahead of time, it's something we all do together. So no matter how we might eat the meal, in what order, I might eat the vegetable before the, the meat or whatever, whatever I do there, we start it all doing the same thing, and that's what helps define us as a community. But certainly there's, there's a long tradition of, of giving thanks. I mean, Steph, you were asking um, about that. I, I mean, in the traditions I know, which is, you know, relatively few <laughs> from the vast array throughout history, but in the traditions I know, there, is, there are examples of this giving of thanks for, for food, right? So, um, I mean, it, it gets introduced into Christianity through Jesus at, at the so-called Last Supper, where, you know, the stories at least narrate him doing this. But that um, seems to be very much predicated on the Passover Seder uh, and some, to some degree. So then it sort of got antecedents in, in, in Judaism. You know, our modern notion, we started today talking about Thanksgiving and, and this, this very defined holiday in the United States and in Canada, certainly in the United States, um, has a long tradition. I mean, when, when the first Europeans got here um, already, they found indigenous peoples that were giving thanks for food they had. Um, the indigenous peoples were used to giving you know, their blessings on food to the Christian tradition, so, so that then they continued that both separately and you know, at times together. Um, but it wasn't sort of ever formalized. I think it was George Washington who, who sort of first declared, you know, on, on the last Sunday in, or last weekend in, in November, you know, will be a day of Thanksgiving. But even that wasn't a formal day. And it was, you know, Abraham Lincoln in, in the late 1800s, sort of post-Civil War, that said one way that we can unify the nation is to sort of make this a more regular traditional time when family will get together. So again, this is the emphasis in the U.S. on family. Family will get together and celebrate the, the bounty that comes from the earth. But it certainly wasn't, in, he didn't invent that. George Washington didn't invent that. The, the Europeans didn't bring it here, although they kind of contributed. The indigenous people, you know, didn't invent it, and at least, you know, they were doing it, but, you know, they didn't learn it from someone else either, right? It's their own tradition. So, so, so kind of what we call Thanksgiving is sort of this, this amalgamation uh, of these uh, historical and cultural forces that have come together in North America plays out differently in other places around the globe, but uh, certainly is representative of the idea that we give thanksgiving, or we give thanks for, for food uh, that comes to us. 
I can't help but think, uh, going back to even just the title of our podcast, that this kind of idea of giving thanks for food, regardless of if it's for uh, directly giving thanks to a deity or not, uh, there's a certain element of infusing the numinous into the experience you're having. Mm -hmm. So even from the perspective of the non-religious who choose to give thanks to the earth for their meal or whatever it may be, it's almost creating this sense of awe and appreciation for what's around you, which I think can be really powerful. As we've seen, you know, I think the idea of just religious experience and bringing people together under these ritual experiences, regardless of if it's got its roots in politics, in social structures, etc., it does kind of create this different level of community, which I think is the really powerful thing about communal meals, especially even in contemporary age, um, there's definitely a certain feeling I have when I gather with my family for, you know, Thanksgiving or Christmas meals. Um, and it's something that I I don't want to give up, you know, like I never want to miss a Christmas. I never want to miss Thanksgiving because there is this certain numinous quality to mm-hmm. it. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, Interesting that, like in the work I've done, so you know, I'm more specific. But I think an example of this stuff is, um, you, you know, when when Peter. So in the book of Acts, it talks about uh, Peter has this vision of a, a, a this. Pick, he, so he's he's hungry. He's praying. He's hungry. He orders room service. But you know, before room service arrives, he has this vision of a blanket coming down with all these foods on. It says, "You can eat anything," and so he realizes this is is God telling him that non. Judeans can start following this very Jewish Messiah. And and so he realizes this and he goes out and he talks to Cornelius and some others and baptizes them. And when he gets back to Jerusalem, the other Jewish leaders are pissed off at him, not because he baptized them. They're pissed off at him because he ate with them. That's what they say. Like, why did you eat with the non-circumcised? Think okay, that's 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 curious. And then you get a little bit later in Acts, they have a council in Jerusalem, and everyone comes together, including Paul, who's been working among the uncircumcised, and they say, um, "What are we going to do about the uncircumcised?" Like that's the question: Should they be circumcised? That's the question they ask at the beginning of Acts fifteen. The answer at the end is, "Here's what they should eat." Or, in fact, in this case, here's what they shouldn't eat. So the answer a question about bod- like cutting the body with what should or shouldn't be eaten. So in those two cases, it, it, it goes back down to food. And it sees there, Steph, when you're saying the food is somehow intimately linked to the numinous. And in, in this case, the, the, the monotheistic God. And, and as you know, non-monotheists start following this God, it comes down to you know, can you eat? Can you eat with them? And what can and can't be eaten with them? Um, and that's, that's a, a, again, a curious way that food becomes the central part of, of that experience of the divine, right? And, and all the way, as we've seen from Rachel's example, uh, of, of, of movements of, of people sort of supporting each other in, in, in what they're not eating, um, uh, to the Emmaus House example, you know, the, the Roman groups that I study, where food is that, that link, that connection to, to, the one hand, the divine, but really what it's functioning as is community building. It's each other. That's that's the connection. And the Zach Efron thing, as I said, also illustrates that. Well, in, in the Hebrew Bible, um, in the book of Daniel, there's that that whole section of just like um, when the, the Jewish people are in exile and 
maybe they feel like they're losing their identity a little bit too. And so what was one of the main things that they focused on? It was um, what what they ate. And so it was a way that they made themselves distinct and remembered their identity from the people that had um, come and taken them off into exile. So, yeah. 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 And, and certainly, um, you know, at least uh, at least in for many scholars, too, that, that it's thinking that that's when the whole P tradition was written. Right. So a lot of the stuff that shows up in Torah actually wasn't there in the earlier renditions but it's right in the Babylonian exile when they they add the priestly tradition that adds a lot of the regulations around uh community and a lot of that has to do with food what you can and can't eat yeah it's people out, out of their context thinking yeah but what how are we going to define ourselves and they do that around food is is there any uh rituals that you've come across in your research that you've adapted into your own life that I'm, I'm much more cognizant, for example, um, I mentioned my running group earlier. So when I joined them, I was both, you know, excited to have, you know, this new community. I could, you know, new friends and people I could um, be involved with. But just then to sort of what I know about ritual, at least, and, and meals, is to, to then sort of also be both part of it, so in the group, and yet an outsider of the group observing for them just how much, you know, the location of you know being at a pub and ordering food and ordering beers um, meant in terms of the community relationship of a group that you know when I joined had been together for 23 years, right? So I was I was really new to this group, and yet they were willing and accepting of me and other people have joined since me. So so they take new members, and yet for those that have been around, you know, 23 years, how important um, it was that um, at that time um, the brew pub, which is is where we meet, um, provided free nachos. I mean that was important to us all. I mean just one or two plates of free nachos and then we'd order an extra beer i'm sure it was also economically in their interest but just how important that 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 connection was being made over food what about what about you other ladies uh are there any traditions that you've brought into your own lives or any that you find interesting so there's this ritual that i heard that the emperor charlemagne used to do he um he had a tablecloth of asbestos and so i guess he uh i don't know just wanted to to look cool or didn't really want to clean up after the meal. So they actually ate right off of the tablecloth of asbestos. And then once they were done, he would just pick up the tablecloth and throw it into the fire and it would look super cool. So I'm definitely not going to do that um, for myself, but I kind of wish that I could. Yeah, I'm definitely not coming for a dinner party at your (laughs) house. Dinner and entertainment at Jacqueline's. (laughs) Putting your health at risk. <laughs> that, <laughs> like eating right off of it. Well, just, I mean, even in that example, how interesting, you know, as I said earlier, I mean, we all have to eat, but but what we eat and who we eat with, we can make choices. And yet even in some of those choices, like Charlemagne, or I think back to the Romans who unknowingly just, you know, um, used lead in a lot of things, even in their their, their water piping. Uh, and, and how we don't always realize that, that what we're eating um, is harming, is as much harm as good. And, you know, we just have to look at contemporary North American society to see a lot of what we consume. It's really not that healthy for us, and uh, and and so um, you know how how we become aware just of the importance of this at so many different levels: so the ritual level, the cultural level, the social level, but the health level uh, as well. Um, that that how how much impact what we eat and how we eat has on our lives. 